For most of recorded human history, there was little to no economic growth. It is only in the last 200 years that humankind has seen any kind of economic growth that allows the flourishing modern world we live in. Though many still live in poverty, despite all of the doom and gloom, the inhabitants of the earth are getting richer, living longer, and leading more fulfilled lives than ever before in human history. While not the only factor at play, the pioneering of economics as a serious discipline has changed the world for the better. The story we hear about economics usually begins with the famous Scottish philosopher Adam Smith writing his seminal work, The Wealth of Nations, in 1776. But there were people before Adam Smith who discussed in detail what we'd now call economic principles. The French physiocrats, such as Francois Quisnay, wrote the economic table. He attempted to analyse the economy in a rational and analytic manner. But even before Smith and before the physiocrats, in the 16th century, Spanish theologians belonging to the school of Salamanca articulated the benefits of trade and the efficacy of the free market. The foundation of economics as a discipline is often viewed as a product of Western civilization. However, as always, non-Western thinkers also theorized about how the economy functioned and how to best harness people's productive energies. 2,000 years before Adam Smith penned The Wealth of Nations, in ancient India, an author by the name of Kautilya penned a book entitled Arthashastra, intended as a guidebook for future kings and leaders. Kautilya had an encyclopedic level of knowledge, and he covered many topics including military strategy, espionage, diplomacy, leadership, and judicial rules. But from a historical perspective, what is most impressive about Arthashastra is the extensive discussion of taxation, business ethics, the benefits of trade, and the importance of incentives, and also the positive effects of prosperity. Until Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, Kautilya's Arthashastra was the most extensive economic treatise on the planet. But I think a little context will help us understand why Arthashastra is so special. Today, economists are an essential component of our governments. Besides a few fringe groups who believe economics is a bourgeois science or a conspiracy theory to enslave the masses, most political partisans of all persuasions believe economics and economists have a role to play in helping us understand the world and to promote prosperity. But it hasn't always been this way. One of the biggest names in Western philosophy, Plato, the man himself, had little positive to say about commerce or private property. Plato's ideal society was ruled over by guardians who strictly regimented and organized society along communal lines, with only a select few undesirables managing the less illustrious world of trade. Though more friendly to private property, fellow Greek and philosophical heavyweight Aristotle believed commercial suits were the mark of a low-born, ill-refined man. Even one of my personal favorite philosophers, Cicero, argued that earning a wage made a man into a kind of slave of another's will, and believed commercial activity to be beneath a virtuous statesman. The uncomfortable truth is that a huge portion of philosophy has been written by aristocratic elites who tended to look down on the crude and mean world of commerce from their lavish inherited country estates. Though some thinkers such as the underrated philosopher and pupil of Plato, Xenophon, wrote about economics, or a sort of proto-economics, his work primarily focused on the home as an economic unit, not broader society. Inheriting this hostile stance towards commerce, medieval thinkers in the West tended to have a similarly dismissive views of commerce. They even viewed interest, or as they refer to it as usury on loans, as an evil that corrupted society. Wealth was not even always viewed as a positive good, but instead as a corrupting force that could tarnish a man's soul. After all, in the Bible, Jesus stated that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Despite the colossal role of commerce, wealth creation, and banking play in our modern lives, for much of the story of the Western world, these topics are viewed with a deep suspicion, if not outright disdain. The philosophers and thinkers who expanded these views were no fools. 
in their respective fields of ethics, metaphysics and theology and so on, they were geniuses of the highest order. But something was in the way of them developing a coherent account of how wealth was created and maintained. Whether it was their aristocratic backgrounds or religious convictions that impeded their appetite for economic affairs, this is a debate for another time. But in the context of how long it took the West to develop a discipline of economics, a treatise like Arthashastra that comes uncannily close to expanding modern economic thought all the way back in ancient India is a story worth knowing about. Kautilya, or he's often referred to as Chanakya, or Vishnagupta, was a member of the Brahmin caste, born sometime around 375 BC in the village of Chanakya in the Gala region. He's a semi-legendary figure with multiple fantastical accounts of his life and exploits documented by the Buddhists and Jainists. But to cut to the chase, somehow Kautilya was in a manner dishonoured or insulted by the then ruling king of the Nanda dynasty, which ruled over the majority of the Indian subcontinent. The Nanda Empire was a militaristic empire that conquered large swaths of land and had transitioned from roving bandits to an imperial dynasty through violence and plunder. Offended, Kautilya decided to take revenge on one of the most powerful people on the planet at the time. While plotting his revenge, he encountered a young boy, Chanagrupta, who, while playing a mock game with his friends where he pretended to be king, showed extraordinary leadership and, in some accounts, even magical abilities, despite his age. Seeing the boy's potential, Kautilya took him under his wing to one day replace the Nanda king. Kautilya succeeded in raising an army alongside the mature Chanagrupta, overthrowing the Nanda king in 321 BC, establishing a new power, the Maurya Empire. With Chandragupta as king and Kautilya acting as a sort of prime minister, the empire flourished through trade, agriculture and commerce, all under the efficient system of finance and administration and security that Kautilya had designed. At some point between 321 and 286 BC, Kautilya decided to write the Arthashastra, a guide for future rulers to follow to establish and maintain a prosperous society. Today, scholars tend to focus on Kautilya's views on foreign policy and grand strategy. Kautilya, though not an amoral thinker by any means, tended to hold the belief that the end justifies the means. Espionage, propaganda and dirty tactics were all fair games for the struggle for power between nations and empires. A view similarly articulated by the infamous Niccolo Machiavelli in 15th century Italy. Though, as the famous sociologist Max Weber noted, Kautilya's pragmatism at times makes Machiavelli look like kind of a lightweight. Though Kautilya is often referred to as the Indian Machiavelli, it might be more accurate to call Machiavelli the European Kautilya. Arguably, Kautilya is the first recorded advocate of real politic or political realism. However, international relations and strategy are only a part of Arthashastra. My edition of the book is over 800 pages long. Seemingly, Kautilya had an extensive set of knowledge. He discusses statecraft, taxation, foreign trade, military strategy, coinage, agriculture, public works projects, fortresses, labor laws, accounting systems, all of the knowledge a king required to rule his country effectively. Archaeologists have even read his chapters on fortresses and public works and compared them to archaeological evidence to see if Kautilya really knew what he was talking about. And it turns out, he most definitely did. His descriptions of buildings and forts resemble the remains from this period. He was no armchair academic by any means. Arthur Shastra is divided into 15 book titles, 150 chapters that cover 180 topics. Though again, commentators tend to focus on international relations, the Sanskrit title of the book, Arthashastra, translates roughly in English to The Science of Wealth, what Kautilya argued was the ultimate foundation of civilised life. Kautilya wrote Arthashastra from the perspective of a new monarch, but he was by no means an advocate of despotism or tyranny. Regardless of the prestige of a king, Kautilya makes it clear from both a moral and pragmatic perspective that a king is bound by an implicit social contract. 
Like many liberals in the early modern period, Coutelier theorized that people originally lived without states in what thinkers like John Locke called the state of nature. However, the state of nature for Coutelier is the law of the jungle, where the strong tend to oppress the weak, and often chaos reigned. Eventually, people tired of the state of nature and yearned for order. So, they crowned a king and gave him a portion of their property to ensure justice and order prevails over the law of the jungle. English revolutionaries in the 17th century argued against the absolutist perspective that a monarch has unlimited power and can trample over people's rights and take their property at his pleasure. For the English revolutionaries, the king was ruled by law, not by personal prerogative. Similarly, Coutelier argues that the king is brought into his position of power not for personal satisfaction or gain, but to serve the common good. He writes of a good king, in the happiness of his subjects lies his happiness, in their welfare, his welfare. Whatever pleases himself he shall not consider good, but whatever pleases the subjects he shall consider good. The king, and by the same extension the state, exists to serve, not to dominate. The power of taxation is only granted to a king on the proviso that he uses taxpayers' money for the common good. Cautilia advised that a good king shall provide the orphans, the aged, the infirm, the afflicted, and the helpless with maintenance. He shall also provide substance to helpless women when they are carrying, and also to the children they give birth to. Citizens under a Coutulian state pay taxes, but only to provide for those who need it most. If a king fails to provide these essential services, Coutulia believes citizens are entitled to some sort of tax refund. For Coutulia, all of humanity's various branches of knowledge exist to teach self-control. He writes that, A king who has no self-control and gives himself up to excessive indulgence and pleasures will soon perish, even if he is the ruler of all four corners of the earth. Being a realist, Coutulia argued that a king does not perish because of some divine law or punishment, but because the dissatisfied will rise up to overthrow his rule for better or worse. Though Coutulia wrote from the perspective of a monarch, he believed that even a king had duties towards his people, and he should practice restraint, only using his power when absolutely necessary. The power of the king is limited by the satisfaction of his people. But this raises the question, what is the best way to satisfy people? The simple answer is, material well-being. Coutelia was deeply versed in ethical philosophy, but he saw that material wealth was the most surefire way to keep people happy. Regardless of ethics, Coutelia argued it was always in the best interest of a good king to make sure his people are wealthier and thus happier. He wrote that, Material well-being alone is supreme. Spiritual good and sensual pleasure depend on material well-being. Akin to a later Enlightenment thinkers, he placed the efforts of people above religious or supernatural phenomena. He warned against mysticism, writing that, the object slips away from the foolish person who continuously consults the stars. What will the stars do? Men without wealth do not attain their objects even with hundreds of efforts. Unlike his ancient contemporaries in the West, who feared wealth brought luxury and vice, Gautilli extols the virtues of wealth because it made people not only happier, but more moral. He explains that when people have a little more money in their pockets, they are more capable of practicing the eternally important virtues of charity and generosity. For Gautilia, there is no nobility or secret virtue in poverty. It is a miserable condition that ideally no person ought to experience. He writes that poverty is death while living. There is no enemy equal to hunger. A poor man's word, even if apt, is not heard. It is not difficult for the rich to do good deeds. Death is preferable to poverty. Now, despite this slightly extreme phrasing, Catilio does not blame the poor for being poor. He blames the king for not taking the proper measures to promote economic growth. If poverty is rife amongst the populace, Catilio advises the king not to act in such a manner that would cause impoverishment, greed, or dissatisfaction among the people. If, however, they do appear, he shall immediately take remedial measures. People leave the state of nature and enter civilized society for order and economic opportunity. Therefore, Cachilli writes that the king ought to refrain from demanding gifts, seizing what he wants, or grabbing for himself and his favorites the produce of a country. 
If a king fails to give what ought to be given and exacts what he cannot rightfully take, then he does not carry out his part of what has been agreed upon. Cotilli provided three main rationales for pursuing economic growth. Firstly, as previously stated, is the king's moral duty and implicit agreement that his reign will bring prosperity to the people. Secondly, wealth and satisfaction produces stability for a good regime. Regardless of morality or how we feel about the issue, wealth maintains stability within a state, something any good ruler should cherish, especially in the turbulent days of the ancient world. Lastly, more wealth means more revenue for which the king can enhance national security and protect his rule from foreign invasions and internal usurpations. Cautelli advised prospective monarchs to establish the rule of law and protect private property and create an efficient, transparent bureaucracy to promote economic growth. If a king is able to increase the productive capacity of his economy, the people would have a higher standard of living, earning him support amongst the public while also yielding higher tax revenues. Because of the importance Cautelli attaches to economic growth, he preferred peace over war, nearly in all situations. Peace of conducive prosperity, while, in contrast, war consumes both lives and property. Libertarians and classical liberals alike agree with Cautelia on the importance of the rule of law and protecting private property. But the word bureaucracy is often a dirty word for those who view the state in a skeptical light. But Cautelia argued that a well-functioning bureaucracy is a prerequisite for economic opportunity and growth. While Cautelia advocated for a benevolent monarch, he did not believe one person could rule alone. Just like a chariot can move with just one wheel, so too can a king not properly govern without the cooperation of his advisors, ministers and bureaucrats. Cautilli advises that sovereignty is practical only with cooperation of others and all administrative measures are to be taken after proper deliberations. The king is not all-knowing and all-powerful. He requires the talents of others channeled through a well-functioning bureaucracy that promotes good government. Good government promotes order, and by maintaining order, the king can preserve what he already has and acquire new possessions to augment his wealth and power. The world depends on the proper function of government, Cautilli writes. Good government consists of three main elements for Cautilli. Firstly, Governments provide for national security and public infrastructure such as roads and bridges that promote commerce. Secondly, government helps implement efficient, long-term policies that remove obstructions to economic growth. Lastly, and possibly most importantly, good government ensures a fair and clean administration with minimal corruption and waste. Order depends on the honesty of those who enforce the law. Clarity, consistency and the minimization of errors were the top priorities for Catulia. Being an experienced minister himself, Catulia lists 40 different methods that corrupt officials can use to embezzle government money. Ever the realist, Catulia recognized that there will always be a potential for corruption, writing, Just as impossible not to taste the honey or the poison that finds itself in the tip of the tongue, so as impossible for a government servant not to eat up at least a little bit of the king's revenue. Nevertheless, officials who wasted taxpayers' money were to be punished for swallowing the labor of the workers. Officials were expected to show their accounts and to prove their honesty. Anyone who told lies or made contradictory statements were liable to pay fines under Catulia's system for misusing taxpayer money, a practice that would appeal to any prudent critic of the state. In some extreme cases, Catulia recommended that corrupt officials be punished not only by heavy fines, but by public humiliation by smearing offenders with cow dung or shaving off all of their hair. Scholars have argued that Catulia can be described as one of the first theorists of intelligence. But outside of foreign affairs, Catulia believed the main function of a state secret service was not to watch over the people but actually government officials. Cautilia recommended hiring spies operating under covers such as priests, jugglers, and even prostitutes to root out treason and corruption within the government. For the maintenance of order and a well-functioning bureaucracy, taxes are required. Cautilia advocated for a wide range of taxes, however he was quite careful to specify taxes should never be too heavy. 
He advocated a multitude of taxes to collect revenue from all available sources, but stressed that a king should never exploit or overtax his people. Long before anyone in the West, Cotillius saw the benefits of taxing people proportionally based off their income and wealth. Students, the ill and widows were exempted from certain taxes and even at times given remissions. Like Adam Smith, Cotillia believed that an effective system of taxation was proportional to someone's income and easy to pay to avoid evasion. Cotillia's main principles of taxation is that the power of taxation is limited, it should not place excessive strain on economic activity, and that it ought to be graduated based on wealth and income. Cotillia constantly emphasized the importance of the long run. Heavy taxation may produce in the short run more revenue, but it was likely to dampen future economic activity and gains. Ideally, Cotillia writes, a king must collect taxes like a honeybee, enough to sustain the state, but not too much to destroy a source of its revenue. He also warned that when people are taxed too heavily, they're likely to emigrate to neighbouring countries, depriving the nation of wealth and talent. Importantly, Cotillia also observed that the state could be too large and swallow taxpayer money. He recommended that a king's public servants should never exceed over a quarter of the government budget. At times, he even advocated for reducing government spending to promote growth. Since a productive economy is the base in which a stable state rests, Cotillia advocated for infrastructure to assist economic development, especially roads which promoted commerce. He said that a good king removes all obstructions to economic activity. Cotillia envisioned the state taking a strong supervisory role over the economy. It is the state's duty to facilitate economic transactions, but not to command the economy at its whim. Though at times Cotillia advocated for intervening in the economy, he specified this should only really be undertaken in times of war, famine, or emergency. Despite living over 2,000 years ago, Cotillia grasped so many economic ideas that would elude Western thinkers until the Enlightenment and beyond. For example, while his contemporary Aristotle condemned interest and loans as immoral, Cotillia outlined the importance of interest for a healthy economy. Another example is that later Roman emperors would inflate their currencies in fruitless attempts to manipulate the economy, while Cotillia, centuries before them, saw no need for the state to manipulate monetary policy. At every single turn, Cotillia sounds like a modern economist more than an ancient philosopher. It's quite difficult to grasp the influence that Arthur Shastra had on Indian thought. Cotillia is often favourably quoted, but by the 12th century, the Arthur Shastra was lost. In 1905, a Tamil Brahmin from Tanjore visited the newly opened Mysore Oriental Library and donated a Sanskrit manuscript written on palm leaves. The Sanskrit scholar, Rudapana Shamastri, identified the text as Arthur Shastra. Now, Sanskrit and English being grammatically and syntactically different languages has led to scholars having numerous debates over the true meaning of Arthur Shastra, a debate that continues today even a hundred years after its rediscovery. Today in India, the name Katuli has a few different connotations. On one end, Katuli is a symbol of a pragmatic and cunning statesman who gets the job done by whatever means necessary. On the other end, nationalists admire Katulia's role in unifying the Indian subcontinent as one of the founders of the Mauryan Empire. Lastly, in international policy circles, Katulia is revered as an advocate of foreign policy realism. But in my opinion, I don't think any of these characterizations really do Katulia justice for the level of thought he had. He had a level of practical and theoretical knowledge unparalleled by any of his contemporaries, or even a large portion of thinkers who followed in his footsteps years after. Now, Katulia is by no means a liberal. He supported a monarchical form of government, and at times an interventionist state, and a certain vicious realism in foreign policy that I don't really like at all. However, if Catulli's Arthashastra had never been lost, his economic principles could have spurred the growth of the modern world well before the days of Adam Smith and David Ricardo. Yet again, Catulli proves that some of the West's most cherished intellectual legacies were actually articulated first by Eastern thinkers whose ideas often didn't find fertile ground for growth. 
Regardless, Kachuli could probably be dubbed the father of Indian economics. Despite the age of his ideas, 2,000 years later, he still challenges to think about the state's obligation to its citizens, how to ensure the standards of good government, and how to promote a wealthy and prosperous society. Thanks so for listening. Portraits of Liberty is produced by Landry Aries and written by me, Paul Meany. If you like the show, make sure to review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to see more content like this, check out the website libertarianism.org.